on his way back to the land God promised him, the man we've known as a deceiver and a schemer was given a new name. Jacob, which means supplanter or even heel grabber, is now Israel. And so after this long night or night-long wrestling match with a man who turned out to be God, the one who had striven with God and with man had prevailed. But we found out the true meaning of this is that God is striving for and against this man in order to keep his promise to Abraham in him. God strives against Jacob's deceptive nature that's bent on obtaining the promise through his own ingenuity and scheming, but also strives for Jacob in the events of his life so that he can reside once again in the promised land and remain the carrier of God's promise in the world. Tonight in chapter 33, Jacob will finally reunite with his estranged brother Esau. And I think the gift really, because it is a gift of chapter 33, is that we're actually invited to to stop our trek through Genesis, to slow down and just for a moment reflect on God, the God of plan and promise that we've been reading about this whole time, to remind ourselves of who He is. So let's walk through this chapter and the events there, get a sense of what's going on, but then we'll zero in on something Jacob says that I think is meant to make us marvel at the mercy of God. In the face of God, where nothing but justice and wrath should be seen, we see unlimited mercy and unlimited grace. Let me pray one more time. Father, I thank you again for your promise. I thank you for your son. And God, I thank you for this text, the gift of your word that you've given to us. Lord, be with me tonight. Watch over everything I say. And watch over all who hear. I ask and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Read the first three verses here of Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Jacob finally physically sees Esau coming and the 400 men that are with him. I think that happens every Sunday night, doesn't it? That falls out of my Bible every Sunday night. The text recounts Jacob's plan to divide up his family into groups so that if Esau and his men attack one, hopefully you know, the others will be able to escape. Rachel and Joseph are obviously the most presses to him, which hints at the favoritism that will be an issue later in Jacob's family. But here, Jacob is prepared now to meet his brother in verse 3. In fact, he shows tremendous humility. Jacob knows what he did to his brother. So as he approaches him, putting himself first, right, willing to accept whatever that meant, He bowed himself to the ground seven times for Esau. Now, just think of it. Given everything we've read, if you can remember Esau's heartbreak, his desperation, his fury, uh, when Jacob stole the blessing of the firstborn that belonged to him back in chapter 27, how would you think, if you didn't know, how would you think this meeting is going to go? We probably don't think it's going to go very well. Why wouldn't you believe that these 400 men were an army 
to kill Jacob, to finally exact revenge. And as sad as it might be to see all these people destroyed, you'd have to blame Jacob. I mean, you'd have to be honest. We might not want Esau to do it, but Jacob started it. Jacob had committed a horrendous crime against his brother, an unforgivable one in that culture. It reminds me of another story in Scripture that we'll talk about a little later when it's expected that a reunion is going to go a certain way and then it goes a completely different way. But let's read on here for the moment. Pick it up in verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. That's probably not how we... Would have expected this to go. A beautiful moment of reconciliation between two very estranged brothers. It's obvious that somewhere along the line over the years, Esau's attitude towards Jacob had changed. Because in verse 4, when he saw him, he ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Just as we go through here, think about where you've seen that before. Just think of any other story in the Bible where you can remember that happening. just And if you get it, just keep it in your head. At some point over the years, Esau had let go of the desire to kill his brother. But Jacob has also changed, hasn't he, in this time. Remember how he had approached Esau. He showed humility and deference, bowing to the ground seven times. And when Esau speaks to him, notice how Jacob responds. He had sent delegations to meet Esau, but he had taken the lead when it came right down to it with his immediate family by going in front of all of them. And then he shows that he's repentant for his sins against Esau, seeking to make amends for cheating his brother by offering him this large gift. Notice what he calls the gift down in verse 11. Please accept my blessing. My blessing. Jacob knows he is admitting here what he had stolen from his brother all those years ago. He wants to repay it. When he says that, it's a reminder of the very thing he had taken from him, the blessing. But take careful notice of what he says when explaining the reason for the gift. Let me read verse 10 again. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Somehow. Seeing Esau's face for Jacob is like seeing the face of God. And remember, there's a frame of reference here. That's not just a thing to say because he had just experienced this the night before in chapter 32. It's such a relief that Esau comes in peace, but even more wonderful here. How strong and sure is the promise of God 
to protect Jacob in order to ensure that the promises will be fulfilled. Pick it up in verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. You see, he continues with that idea. And I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So the reconciliation between the two brothers continues as Esau offers to accompany him on the rest of his journey home in verse 12, which would have meant added protection for Jacob as well and his family. But Jacob politely refuses by telling him that his group has to move at a much slower place, slower, slower pace actually than Esau's. When Esau offers to leave some of his people behind to accompany Jacob in verse 15, he tells him it's, it's just not necessary. So reconciliation is taking place, but it seems like Jacob isn't entirely comfortable with it. He, he still wants to be separate from Esau. The offer to travel together implied that they would be heading to Esau's home, the same place Esau is going, Seir, a city in Edom. But where is Jacob going? Jacob is traveling to his original home. He made a vow to God back in 2821. And by distancing himself from Esau, he remains free to go where he wants to go. And this is important. It's sad, but he's also keeping the promised line separate from the rejected line. The covenant community cannot intermingle with those outside it and jeopardize their relationship to God. And Jacob ultimately doesn't need the protection of Esau, does he? Because he has the protection of God. He travels south to Succoth on the east side of the Jordan River. There he builds a booth for his animals. It's, it's not a permanent stop, of course, because he's headed for the land of Canaan. And he finally arrives there in Shechem where he buys a piece of land from the Shechemites and sets up his tent and builds an altar. In verses 18 to 20, he names the altar El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And finally, the story of Jacob's journey far away and back again safely ends exactly where God promised it would, Canaan. Keeps his distance from the Canaanites, at least for now, sets up his camp outside the city. His purchase of land parallels his grandfather Abraham, who also purchased land. Maybe Jacob is uh, wanting to have a burial place for himself also eventually, but he gives honor to God by also, again, building an altar, not building a city. I think it would do our souls and our church much good to focus on this reunion and reconciliation for a while here in chapter 33. It's hard for us to grasp the significance of this really because in our culture, the blessing of the firstborn is not as fixed and important as it was in that culture. We, we And for that reason, we, we don't fully grasp maybe what Jacob actually took from Esau. 
when he schemed him out of it. If we did, I, I think the chapter would, would blow us away. But look back again, just for a moment, at verse 10. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. How was seeing the face of Esau like seeing the face of God? Because in the last 24 hours, Jacob has seen the faces of two people who should have killed him. And they've been merciful to him. Jacob is thinking when he sees Esau and Esau is running to him and weeping and embracing him. This is just like last night. I deserve to die here. And yet I'm blessed last night with a new name today with forgiveness of my brother. Beloved, do we know what it's like to be forgiven? To be reconciled to one who was our enemy, especially when that enemy was not an estranged brother, which is significant enough, but that enemy is God himself. In the face of God, where nothing but justice and wrath should be seen, you and I see unlimited mercy and grace. Our Lord Jesus knew the importance of this moment in Genesis, I think, He recalled this reconciliation as the template for reconciliation with God in Luke 15. When another younger brother had sinfully and selfishly ripped away his share of his father's wealth. And rather than journeying to a foreign land to find a wife from his kindred, this younger brother squandered it and wasted it. Everything his father had given him on indulging his desires And when he finally bottomed out, he didn't pray to the Lord for mercy. He considered his options. He weighed out what he could do. At least I could be a slave in my father's house. It would be better than this. And he concocts this plan to return home and a story for his father that just might keep him from rejecting him altogether. So with his stone cold heart and a hungry belly, he arose and came to his father in Luke 15, 20. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's reciting his script. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I don't think there's a more staggering picture of God in all of Scripture than that father in Luke 15. We all know what should happen to the younger son. When he has the nerve to come home. We all know what should have happened to Jacob. But when Jacob doesn't get what he deserves. Not once but twice. Beloved there's the gospel. The son that should be. The one running. And falling. And begging. And pleading with Esau. Is instead approached. By Esau. The son who should have in Luke 15. 
been running to his father, begging him to accept him, is approached by the father who runs to him and embraces and kisses him. In our desperate apprehension of God, God comes to us first. The face that should be turned against us in wrath and judgment turns towards us in love and mercy. And by His grace, His mercy, His love actually reconciles us completely to Him. The one who has not offended, the one who has done nothing wrong, the one who has not sinned, does all the reconciling. Beloved, the face that is seen when true reconciliation and true forgiveness takes place then is none other than the very face of God. It's God who forgives and reconciles enemies who not only don't deserve it, but do deserve His wrath and His judgment. And instead, instead, we're embraced and kissed. Our homecoming is celebrated. The face of God reconciles, beloved. Where can healing for sin be found in our lives in the face of God? Where can reconciliation between us for hurts and sins be found in the face of God? The face of God reconciles. That's how you know you're seeing it. Do we have any sense tonight of the chasm that was crossed for you and I to be saved? Do we grasp what we've been freely forgiven of? Do we have any sense of what God has forgiven? Any sense of what it means for God to reconcile sinners to himself? And let me make this a little more personal and a little more difficult for the sake of clarity. I think we know whether or not we've grasped God's forgiveness of us by whether or not we refuse to be reconciled to one another. And what we need in that moment, in those situations when we cannot reconcile, is to see the face of God. Because the mercy in His face is incomprehensibly sufficient and kind. If we could just look into His face when we are angry, when we are hurting, we would remember. That's what you see when you look in His face. And where do we behold the face of God, you and I? In the face of Christ. Beloved, the story of Jacob and Esau is one plagued by hurt and unkindness. Let's not forget that here in the midst of this reconciliation. But the story ends in reconciliation because Jacob sees the face of God. Because Jacob is reminded of what mercy is. When he came face to face with what he deserved and didn't get it, he remembered the face of God because that's the same thing that happened the night before. It is in God's forgiveness of us that our hearts toward others must be shaped if reconciliation has taken place between us and God, if that gap can be closed, if that expanse can be crossed, what are we saying about what we think of ourselves when we cannot forgive others? What are we saying in that? What are we not seeing? How can that be the case? Because we don't do that. We just don't talk about it. 
Christians don't forgive. You know what churches are plagued by? Grudges. Coldness. Unforgiveness. No wonder. It's all, we always think our churches aren't growing numerically because of lack of technique or polish. Beloved, we don't see the face of God. We don't see the face of God, so we don't have a story to tell. We just have a thing to invite people to. We don't do this, and I don't know how we don't do this. I don't know how we just let these things fester until we destroy one another. Why is it so easy for us to hurt each other? How can we so quickly be so unkind to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Why is that so easy to do? To disregard and deceive each other rather than hold up each other. Beloved. And here's the thing. Here's the thing again. It's like when you talk about loving one another. When you talk about forgiving one another. None of us looks in the mirror and says, I need to forgive. We all start thinking of people that should be forgiving us. Don't we? We, we, we hear this and we think, that's right. Such and such needs to forgive me. That may be the case. It may absolutely be the case. But it's also probably the case that somewhere along the line, there's somebody we have not yet forgiven. And our inability to forgive, our propensity to hurt, means that we have not gazed long enough yet into the face of God. Not only does God's infinite and undeserved mercy towards us mean that we must forgive each other, it also means we don't need to hurt each other either. Why does so much forgiveness need to take place in the church usually? Because there's been so much hurt. But we've been reconciled to one another through the cross. That has happened. From God's perspective, we are reconciled to one another. Why can we not do that horizontally? What keeps us from this? Any remaining animosity or hurt is our choice. It's our refusal to let what Jesus has done for us so that we may be reconciled to God have its full effect in us. There's only one way for these things to be healed. There's only one way for sinners to be reconciled. We need to see the face of God. We need to see Him and remember when we look into the face of those we have hurt or of those that have hurt us until we are so saturated by Christ that to see one who has hurt us or whom we have hurt is like seeing the face of God. Just everywhere you go, that's all you can see is the mercy you've been shown in every face in which you look. What if we saw the world that way? What if we saw our enemies that way? What if we saw the people with whom we're estranged that way? Jacob had wrestled with God and lived. And if it did anything to the man, it made himself aware. We know that from verse 10. I didn't die when I should have. God knew me, and yet God spared me. Beloved, this is the gracious key to reconciliation. Vertically with God, horizontally between one another. Forgiveness does not mean that every relationship can be restored and go on like it was before. Sometimes that's not possible. But beloved, because of the cross, forgiveness 
is always possible. And we're always looking for a way out of it. Because we say things like, well, I'll forgive, but I don't have to forget. You tell me how you do one and not the other. I'm, I'm open to hear it. What is forgiveness if it isn't forgetting? If it's no longer holding the offense against you? And when we say, and I, I'm not making light of it, do you know what has happened to me? Do you know how I have been hurt? God isn't making light of it when he tells us to forgive. His son died to cover these things. God isn't making light of what hurts you and I. He's not making light of the things we do that divide us. But there is forgiveness. There is mercy. We have been reconciled to God and nobody in here should have been. None of us. None of us. Me included. Most certainly. This is the key to reconciliation. That God has met us. That God has faced us. That God is completely aware of everything we've ever done. And all we have ever done is rebelled against and hurt Him. And in light of that, He has ran to us, embraced us, welcomed us, and celebrates our salvation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul writes that to Christians. You re- they're already reconciled to God. Right. But they don't believe it. Be reconciled. You who are reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. Look into His face. You're reconciled. You have peace with Him. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt has been paid. Your penalty has been poured out on another and God accepts it. Be reconciled to God. This is the key to everything that keeps us apart and keeps us in despair. We don't believe this. We don't stare into his face long enough. We don't gaze into it long enough. And we don't believe it. We don't believe it. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Christians are ambassadors for God. Do we know why? Because he's reconciled us to himself when we didn't deserve it. There is no one in the universe better equipped To be an ambassador for God than one who has received his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thought. The angels are not ambassadors for God. You and I are. You and I. Beloved, our debt has been paid at Christ's expense. This is God's indescribable gift to us that has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're reconciliation's biggest recipient. So as C.S. Lewis once said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you and in me. It rubs, doesn't it? It rubs because hurts cut deeply. But our Savior has suffered. Our Savior has felt these hurts, beloved. 
Look into the face of God tonight. You and me. Look into His face. If there's such a thing as revival, that's where it is. I mean, you, you, we can get pumped up and sing the same chorus a hundred times and, you know, get it rip-roaring and going and loud and church can be an echo chamber where we just come in and yell about all the same stuff, but what if we just looked into the face of God for a while? Well, you can and not die. <laughs> I mean, when you see these things in light of things like what Paul said to Timothy this morning, that God who no one has ever seen or can see, well, if that's the case, what is this grace that makes him visible to you and I? What is it actually doing? What is it actually covering and making possible? What is it bought for us to see Him? To see Him. We can look into His face because it's turned toward us in love and forgiveness. Forgiveness when it should be turned towards us again in wrath and judgment. I mean, just how practical is this for our lives? How practical is it? That, do, we, do we even grasp what looking into the face of God for so long and fixing on Him so clearly would do to our relationships, would do to the burdens we carry, would do to the fractures that we have? Doesn't it get old? Doesn't it get old to just live with tension because we can't reconcile with one another or with people in our lives? It gets old. It's old trying to make it seem like everything's okay. It gets old trying to fake it, you know, so that you don't have to deal with the added burden of awkwardness. Well, what does this mean then? What is it for? We don't have to live that way. Not you and I. Not the church of Jesus Christ. We don't have to live that way. In this is life and healing for everything. I, I think, I think when Jesus speaks about how, you know, those, those very hard verses, if, if, if you don't forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will not forgive you. I don't think he is telling us that salvation is earned by forgiving other people, right? In other words, we know it doesn't mean that because of the rest of scripture, that you can't Gain your salvation by forgiving other people. So what does it mean that if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you? I think he means if you can't forgive, you, you, you don't really know him. You've never seen his face. If he saw his face turn toward you in mercy, we'd forgive. Maybe... Maybe the issue is we haven't truly been reconciled to him. We've just been going through these motions because if we'd seen his face turn toward us, we would forgive others. How could we not forgive others? And I'm not questioning anybody's salvation. That's not my point. I'm saying, is it possible that we haven't seen him? That we haven't looked at him? That, that we've agreed with something and we believe but, I mean, has, has it done the number on us? Has it done the Jacob on us? Here, kill me. Take everything I have. I, I, that's what I deserve. 
How can we forgive others when they hurt us so badly? I mean, what if they're Christians? What if we've been hurt by Christians? That hurts. That hurts. Christians just get a free pass for hurting us? Is is it just, well, I have to forgive you and you have to forgive me, so I guess it's a wash. Beloved, think, think it through again. Think it through again. Either someone sins against us, we're covered by Jesus, and therefore they've been addressed when God poured out His wrath on Jesus as though Jesus had done that. Or, the person that hurt you will bear the punishment for their sins in eternal condemnation. But no sin goes unaddressed in God's universe. You don't have to worry about that. Right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Right? All the hurt done to you, if it was by another believer... Well, that's part of what he died for, right? And, and, and to hold it over somebody's head then is a matter of questioning the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. Right? That's a big problem. How does, what do I do? Right? When, when you hear the command to forgive, don't try to forgive. Realize that you can't. And go to God with it. Go to God with it. We need to see his face. Go to him with it. Lord, I can't do that. I can't. The hurt is too deep. It hurts too much. Give me your grace. Help me have mercy on me. That's what the law is meant to make us do. Send us running to Jesus. I can't do that. Uh, Just imagine if, if the church was a place where everybody was just constantly running towards Jesus. The kindness we would have for one another. Oh, you're you're a mess too? Here, let me help you. Let's run together. Let's figure this out together. I can't forgive either. I've been hurt too, right? Just imagine it. Jesus has borne all of our burdens. He's borne all of our shame, all of our sin, those we commit against others, and those that have been committed against us. It's an ugly, ugly world. But Jesus is a beautiful, beautiful Savior. And mercy triumphs over judgment. And you and I should know that better than anybody. Do you know why? Because we've looked into the face of God and He's been merciful to us. So be at peace tonight. Beloved, be at peace. Look into the face of God. Look at Him. Look at Him. I guarantee you this will change us. Look at him. I mean, is there any more evidence about how much help and grace we need? Just look at him. He loves you. He loves you. Be reconciled to God and to one another. There's nothing we can lose by doing this. Jesus has taken it all on himself. This is the power of the cross. Behold the face of God, beloved. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. God, I thank you for revealing it to us. I thank you for our church. I thank you for each and every person that is here and each and every person that isn't. I thank you for our church and I pray that we would see your face as we see one another and are reminded of what you've done for us. Make that what we see. Make us whole. Give us Jesus, we ask and pray in his name and for his name's sake in our midst. Amen.